And, um, you know, it's all about Jesus, guys. It is. And that's why we gather here. We gather together because of, of who he is to us. Um, and um, so this morning, uh, if it, I, and if it wasn't for him, none of us would be here. Amen. And so um, maybe you don't understand that. Maybe you've not heard that. I, I don't know all of you very well. I know most of you. I know there's a few new people here, but I would hate for you to go from this place and not hear the good news. And the good news is this, is that the Bible tells us that Jesus died for our sins. And the reason why that's good news is because we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God, every one of us here. Um, and um, because of that, um, we were separated from God, the Bible says, because of our sin. We lived in rebellion against him, some of us more than others. For me, I'm probably the one more than others who, who went my own way and rebelled against God for a long time. And um, But the only way to be restored back to God is through his son, Jesus Christ. And God tells us in his only begotten, his only begotten son, God in the flesh, to die as a sacrificial offering for our sins. We that's this referred to as the grace of God. It's, it's, a, it's this God's favor, God's work on our behalf simply because he loves us. And God offers that free gift of the work and the payment that Jesus did on the cross to pay for our sins to each and every one who would believe in him, the Bible says. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it tells us that he was put in a grave. But three days later, he rose from the grave showing that he had victory over the death that we deserved and showing us that he had the power and ability and the willingness to forgive our sins. And our God, Jesus, who made that sacrifice for us, is alive. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says that, For by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a work that we do, lest we would boast, but by the work of God. And, 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 and Jesus himself said while he was here, he said, he said I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And the apostles, when they heard Jesus talking about these things, they were a little confused at times, and they, they even said to, to Jesus, you know, because they were wanting to, 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 offer, to receive everything that Jesus had for them and to have that intimate, special relationship that God calls us into through His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and often we think that it's, a worse, that it's a work-based thing that we must go through, that we have to perform, that we have to do something. And what we have to understand is that on the cross, Jesus did all the work. And Jesus' disciples were even given that answer when they said to Jesus, they asked him, what must we do to do the works of God, to please God, so we'd be honored by God? And, and, and Jesus said, this is the work that you do. He said, believe in him whom he sent. Jesus was speaking of himself. So I'm here to tell you this morning, like it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you too can be saved. If you wish to know more about that, you can talk to anyone here in the church that, that looks like they've been coming for a while. Um, you can speak to me. Um, and uh, if you just even if you've been coming for, for a while and you have more questions about that, please don't leave without having your questions answered. All right, uh, Genesis chapter 11. It says, in our world, um, well, let's just start off like, with this. Um, this is an interesting chapter. Last week was an interesting chapter. As we're in Genesis chapter 10, we're going through this genealogy. But chapter 11 kind of brings some closure to really a first couple sections of the book of Genesis. And, and as we begin to discuss this, I want to I point out to you, I, anybody here have any kind of conversations with 
um, kids who are high school or college age in regards to, to, to God and, and spiritual things. If you have, you probably run into this same kind of conversation perhaps with some of them in conversations that I've had with many um, over the last few months as I've had opportunity to talk to them. But in our world today, especially among our youth in, in, in high school age and in college age kids, there's this growing popularity into this religion or philosophy called deism. It's been around for since the beginning of time. It's not, it's not anything new, but there's this resurgence of this philosophical belief or religion, whatever you want to call it, in regards to deism. And deism is a theological or philosophical position that combines the rejection of revelation and authority as a source of religious knowledge with the conclusion that our reason and our observation of the natural world are sufficient or all that we need to determine the existence of a single creator of the universe. So deists or deism, they believe in God the creator. But deists, they, 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 they present their faith as the quote-unquote natural religion. And they mean that in a, in a superior kind of way when they refer to that. They, they return, refer to their faith as natural religion, not a revealed religion saying that the knowledge of God is based upon the application of human reason, which is complete foolishness, by the way. If, if man thinks that he can reason and understand God in his own reasoning, our limited reasoning, our finite in reasoning and understand an infinite God, I mean, that, as far as an equation, just doesn't line up. But, nevertheless, they believe that the, that, that the, the knowledge of God is based upon the, the application of human reasoning and upon the laws, the natural laws that are found in nature. And, and so in one sense, they, they conclude a lot of things that even Paul writes about in the book of Romans where it says all of creation testifies to the fact that there is a creator, right? And the interesting thing, you guys got to remember that, that, that Satan works in a way today that he has from the very beginning in that Satan's a liar, but every good lie has a measure of truth, right? And, and, and so there's this measure of truth found in deism. And in, as we look at this and, and see this, what I want to point out to you is that in light of this, deists say that um, this natural religion or, or, or philosophy that, that they adhere to, um, it actually frees those who embrace it, they say, from the inconsistencies of superstition and the negativity of fear that are represented in all quote-unquote revealed religions such as Judaism or Christianity or Islam. They, they classify our religion and others, not like our religion, but others separate from theirs as a revealed religion. In other words, where God somehow has intervened and revealed and made himself known to us. But even though deists believe that a creator God does exist, they believe, they also believe that once God created everything in the universe, it, us and the planets and the stars and the moons and everything, and once God created all the universe and set everything into motion or into place, he then retreated. That's what deists believe. That God created, he put everything in motion, and then he's retreated. He's left. 
And he has had since then, since the beginning of creation, no further interaction with his creation, with the created universe or with the beings that are in it. Now, I don't know for sure if, if, if much of the college-age kids and the high school-age kids that I've talked to really conceive this on the level that I've just spoken to you, but this is where it becomes, where that philosophy that they have somewhat bought into, this is where it begins to be portrayed out in their life when you begin to talk to them. Because this religion or philosophy, what it does when you understand it, when you perceive it, that there's a God out there, but He's an impersonal God, who really is not interested in what goes on here or in my life, what happens is it brings forth thoughts and feelings that God has abandoned this world. And He's abandoned those He has created, and He's left us to our own demise. Because you look warned at the world around us and you go, there's got to be some kind of intervention or we're all in trouble. Now that's not what a deist would profess, but nevertheless, that's the feelings and thoughts that it produces, and that's the conversations that I've had with these kids. But these beliefs and the thoughts and feelings that they produce, they can be no further from the truth. And, and, and the Word of God assures us of this with, with many different accounts of God's un, ongoing involvement and His ongoing interaction with His creation as He, God, exercises His authority, literally His sovereign authority over all of creation in order, and we go, why would he do that? Is because he has a perfect will. He has a plan. And God does this. He's involved and he interacts in order to bring forth his perfect will into the world that we live in, but more importantly, into our lives individually. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 9, it speaks of this saying, he says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, I hear that as a, as a, as a Christian, and I go, thank you, God. Because there's a lot of, before I gave my life to Jesus Christ, man, I had a plan. And if it was not for God directing my steps, even today as a believer, not just as an unbeliever, if it wasn't God intervening in my life and directing my steps, I would be doomed. Furthermore, in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, it says, it says listen to this, it's a, a little more um, uh, specific in what we're trying to be, what God's trying to teach us about his involvement, his interaction in this world we live in and in our lives. And, and in Proverbs 19, 21, it says, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And that directs us again to the sovereignty of God, the authority of God, the, 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 the dominion that God has over all of the earth and over all of creation. Many are the plans in man's hearts. But it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And just, just a little bit of application, if we look around at the political scene and the climate that we live in right now as, as United States citizens and the potential for whatever's going to come in the future through our, our candidate choices, I get assurance when I go, many, when I read this, when the Lord says, hey, listen, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's my purposes, God says, that's going to prevail. See, in light of all these verses, it's very clear to us that the Bible teaches us that God is involved with the world we live in. He's involved with the lives that we live and he does so not only because he cares about us, he does so because he's going to bring forth his will. 
His plans and His purposes for all of creation. It was the 14th century Augustine monk named Thomas A. Kempis who wrote in his book on the imitation of Christ. And he said, he said this, it's a famous quote, he said, man proposes, but God dispossesses. Man proposes, but God dispossesses. And even though many people have used this quote down since the 14th century, in, in many different ways, in many different contexts, the truth is, is many don't understand that when Thomas Kempis wrote this, he was declaring this. He was declaring that man does what he can, but God does what he will. We do what we can, but God does what he will. And this morning, I point all of these things out because there's probably no other chapter in the Bible that greater illustrates this truth than what we read about here in chapter 11. That man does what he can, but God does what he will. Many are the plans in the man's heart, but it is the Lord's purposes that prevail. Man proposes, but God disposes. And when we read this account about the Tower of Babel and then read the genealogies that follow midway through to the end of the chapter, guys, it's hard to really ignore the fact that God was and God is at work in His world today accomplishing His purposes. And here's the, here's the uh, re really reassuring truth that I want you to glean from this story and from this account and, and, and because we're exactly the same, and this gives us hope, is that God was and still is at work in his world today, accomplishing his purposes in spite of the plans and in spite of the projects of sinful people like you and me. With that, if you guys will turn to verse 1 there, and it says, chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, these or the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. I think, I think verse 7 should have a but. I'm not going to add to the words, words of God. But verse 7, God said, Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So verse 8, The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we know that there's many out there who don't know you. 
many, Lord, who know of you but are confused and lost and, 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 and um, fearful. We know, God, that there's even kids who've raised in the church who've gone into the secular world that feel that you're distant. And we know, God, that you've not gone away. And somehow they've drifted away and they're being filled with these lies that we've talked about this morning, that you're an impersonal God that, that really doesn't care about them or what's going on in this world that we live in. But Lord, we know that's not the truth. We know, God, that you have a divine plan, a purpose, and a will for all of our lives. So I pray, Lord, that as we are gathered here this morning and we are studying your word and we're worshiping you, I pray that each one of us would see your plans and purposes for our lives. And God, that we would walk in these good works that you've set before us. Lord, that we would be a light to those around us and share this hope that we know to be true that we found in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So in order to help us to, what under, what's under, to, to understand what, what's, what's taking place or what took place in Babel, in the plains of Shinar, with this tower, and to understand why God when he saw this, then responded to man in this way by confusing their language and by dispersing them, we need to remember a key thing. We need to remember what God has seen and proclaimed or declared up to this point through the book of Genesis more than once about the nature of mankind. Remember, prior to the flood, we are told in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And even after the flood, God again declared the evil he saw within man, saying in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, it says, Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So in this chapter, we see, really, we see man's short-lived obedience to keep God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And how mankind rose up in arrogance to rebel against God's plan, to rebel against God's will. But also being shown to us in this chapter is the abundant mercy and amazing grace of God who continues to this day to orchestrate His plan to deliver all of mankind, whoever would believe in Him, trust in Him, rely upon Him from the judgment that is attached to sin even though we as men, as mankind, continually disobey God. And if we're, if we're to take a moment to look back over the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis as a whole, what you're going to see is we're going to see a pattern being developed in light of what we're reading here, in light of what we're reading in chapter 11. And this pattern is revealed really by four main events, four great events that have been recorded for us in these first 11 chapters, starting all the way back with the creation of the universe, event number one. Then we read about the fall of man, number two, the flood, event number three, and then this attempted construction of the Tower of Babel, event number four. And all of these events reveal to us that where mankind disobeys God, God judges sin, because he's a just God, but then in God's grace, same pattern over and over again, 
But then in God's grace, he makes a new beginning. You know, I, I cannot fathom that conversation or that idea that people have that says, you know what, I can believe in your God of the New Testament who's a God of love, a God of grace, and God of mercy. But that God in the Old Testament, that dude is brutal, and I don't know how you can worship and love a God like that. You know, I don't see that. I see the same God who is the same yesterday, today, forever, the same God in the New Testament as I do in the Old Testament when you study out and read it. Even in these first 11 chapters of the book where you see God judges sin, but God's a God of grace. God's a God of mercy. He loves us. He gives us chance and opportunity and chance and opportunity for a new beginning. For example, you know, Adam and Eve sinned, right? But God clothed them, it says. Not only did God clothe them, he promised in, in, in light of their sin to send a redeemer into the world. Then we know that Cain killed Abel, but God, we're told, then sent another son, another heir, a, a son by the name of Seth, who would carry on the godly line. Yet we know that these descendants of Seth, who were called the sons of God, that they ended up marrying with the godless descendants of Cain, and when the whole earth then became corrupt and filled with violence, God then had to wipe out the earth all of creation with a flood. But we know that was not the end either. There was still a new beginning because God looked upon Noah and his family. And Noah and his family, we're told, believed God's word. And having found grace in the eyes of God, they were spared from the judgment. And after the flood, they were instructed to repopulate the earth, to go, to fill the earth, to multiply, to be scattered abroad. But in spite of this new beginning, mankind again in their short-lived obedience revolted against God. And this is what we're reading about in these verses in chapter 11. And in verses 1 and 2, if you look there with me, we're told that mankind had begun to move, spread out from the east, obeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply, to go forth and to fill all the earth. But when they came to the plains of Shinar, they stopped moving. And it says specifically that they decided to, the word used there is dwell. They decided to dwell there. Now the Hebrew word in verse 2, the original language that this was constructed in, the, the Hebrew word for dwelt in verse 2 is the word yashab. And, and, and it means this, it means to take a sitting position, but specifically to take a sitting position with the intent of sitting in a place of prominence or nobility, like enthroning yourself. That's the idea. To yashab, to take a sitting position with the intent of, 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 of elevating yourself in prominence or nobility. And this definition because of it it helps us to see and it better describes what's really going on in this situation with the heart of mankind and why they had started to travel and then began to stop in the plains of Shinar in Babel to build this tower if you remember from last week's study back in chapter 10 as we were going through those genealogies we were told about a man by the name of Nimrod and we're told that Nimrod rose up as a, as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And when we studied that out, we've seen that he wasn't a hunter of animals, but he was a hunter of men's souls. And he established his kingdom, we're told, in the land of Shinar. And in chapter 10, verse 2, we read that Babel, this place we're reading about, was the beginning of his kingdom. It was Nimrod's capital city. 
And so when we keep the context of what we read in chapter 10 here with what we are now reading in chapter 11, we can conclude or deduce that under Nimrod's leadership, man decided this. They decided we don't need to go any further in this filling of the whole earth because now they were something great. Now they were going to yashab, sit here, stay here, dwell here, and lift themselves up in a place of prominence. Guys, do we think about that? And really, this is just an attitude of self-will. Not your will, God, be done, but my will be done. It's an attitude of self-will that comes along with, 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 the, the, with pride. And, and it's presented, this, 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 this attitude is presented to us or told to us in verses 3 and 4. Look, there in the text in verses 3 or 4, that attitude is revealed when it tells us that they said this, let us make bricks and let us build ourselves a city and let us, what? Make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us do our will, lest we be scattered, which was God's will. In light of this, it's easy to see that man's focus really had gone from that upward focus directed towards God to this horizontal focus, which, which is directed towards self. And fulfilling God's will was no longer a priority, and obedience to God had lost its way to man's self-will and pride. But as we all well know, any and every time this happens, it goes bad. At least that's how it goes for me. When my pride and self-will gets in the way of God's will, it goes bad. And the truth is, is we are no different than what we read about in these men here because we too can also get our eyes off of God and onto ourselves. And without a doubt, as is exampled in the text, in the story, this, when this begins, um, uh, we start to think and believe, or how this begins is when we begin to think and believe, when we begin to start to think and believe that our ways are better than God's ways. Is that not the root of all of it? When we go, my way is better than God's way. Remember, God had told man to be scattered, like I said, throughout all the earth. But in verse 4, we read that man had come to this conclusion that it was now not best, it was now not best for him to stop in the plains of Shinar at the city of Babel or it was now best for him to stop in the plains of Shinar in the city of Babel and to dwell there. That's what they had concluded. And at the core of this thinking, this thinking that our ways are better than God's ways, is the belief in the lie that God's plans are somehow not good for us. That God's thoughts toward us, towards us are thoughts of evil. And we typically express these things when, you know, when, when, when something isn't going the way that we want, right? When something's not going the way that we want, we usually go, you know, we usually go, why God? Why have you allowed for me to be in this difficult situation? Or, or, or asking God, why, he, why did you ask me to do this thing? Did you not see what was going to happen? As if God had some kind of evil intent in mind when he asked us or told us to do. But remember, guys, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, God's heart for his creation, God who intervenes in, in our lives and has cared about us and cares about us, it, it, God's heart for his creation is revealed in Jeremiah 29, 11 when God said this. He said, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you. 
So, so we go, why, God, why? What are you thinking, God, by allowing this or by doing this? And God says, listen, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. And then he goes on to say, they're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's God's heart. You see, the bottom line is, is we're just like those who are reading about here in Genesis 11, in that we too are easily deceived by the evil that fills our own thoughts and is in our own hearts. Remember, we are told that Eve believed this lie that Satan had come and told her in that God was holding something good back from her when he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan said, God just doesn't want you to have something good. He's holding out on you as thoughts of evil towards you. And what we know is, is Eve believed the lie. And she disobeyed God and she ate from the forbidden fruit. And once again, man has had here, man had concluded in chapter 11 that his own wisdom was best. That being scattered abroad over the face of the earth, as God had commanded, really wasn't best for him. It really wasn't in his best interest. And like I said, we're not so different. And so I would ask each one of us, including myself this morning, what things are in our lives that we hold on to, that we tell, no, tell God no to, and even pursue after knowing that they are contrary to what God has spoken to us? And because we think and believe that what God has said cannot be best for us and that our idea of things or what we have decided to do is better than what God has said, what things do we put in that light and go, God, not your will, but my will be done? In light of this, guys, we've got to remember, we've got to remember the words of God in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, which says, God speaking, he says, listen, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Guys, it's just as simple as when we tell our kids, listen, I want you to do this, and, and our kids go, why? Because they think that we don't have their best in our interest. And so they go, why your will? Why not my will? And we go, because I said so. And, and really what we're saying is we're saying, I know better than you. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I've lived a lot longer than you. I know more than you. And it's not an arrogant thing. It's because we as parents love our kids and we want their best. Their best. It's the same with God. He says, listen, I know more than you. My ways are greater than yours. Trust me. My thoughts for you are good. My intents for you are good. It's not evil. So our response should be, thy will be done, not mine. Here on this earth, just as it is in heaven. Remember, Proverbs 4, verses 12 is a warning in light of all this. It says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. If you look at verses 5 through 9, kind of move on here. Um, we're kind of focused on the tower now. The tower was built at Babel, this tower. It was probably known, okay, this is, this is some, some, some 
conjecture, okay? It's, it's, but there's archaeological evidence that supports it. So it was probably known as what's called uh, a ziggurat. And archaeologists have excavated several of these large structures which were primarily built through many different cultures in many different places over the world for religious purposes. And a ziggurat, it was like a pyramid, except that there were these successive levels. So it would go up and it would come in. They were recessed. And it would go up and it would come in. And, the, and it was so that you could walk up on top of these steps. And, and, and at the top of these steps, there was a shrine. That was the purpose. There was a shrine that was dedicated to a god or to a goddess. So in building this structure, the Tower of Babel, we should understand that the people weren't really trying to climb to heaven like they're going to get up high enough and dethrone God. Rather, what they were doing is they were rebelling against God. They were worshiping false gods or a false goddess, and they were in hope that the god or goddess that they were worshiping would come down from heaven and meet them. And this is further revealed by the fact that at the end of this, this section there in verse 9, we're told that the city was called Babel, which means this, the gate of the gods, plural. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a picture of pagan idolatry and pagan worship that, that's revealed here in Scripture to us. And the very act of its construction, we know, was an, was a, an act of rebellion. It was a clear, arrogant declaration of war against God, the one and only God who said, go and do this. And even more than resisting God's command to scatter and to repopulate the earth, we're told in verse 4 that the people wanted to make a name for themselves. So God then seeing, that man's, in, seeing man's intent, he said, he said this, God proclaimed, he said, if mankind were left in this current condition of one people in one language, he says, it would not be a good thing. And God said in verse 6 that this condition in that where nothing that man proposed to do, he said that it would not be withheld from them as, as a united entity in this act of rebellion from God. And, and in, this, in, in this statement, in, in and of itself, you don't need to see it necessarily as a bad thing because unity is a good thing. The power that comes through a unified force can be a good thing. So in and of itself, unity in mankind is not a bad thing. But when we consider what mankind was pursuing and that within their hearts and in their imaginations, as God had clearly spoken, was, was evil continually, we see that with those as the as a foundation for what a unified mankind was doing, we then see why it was not good. You see, mankind was not thinking about what was best for his fellow man. Mankind wasn't even thinking about the good that God could do through them or would have done through them if they acted with one accord. Remember, they were concerned with how they could exalt themselves, how they could sit in positions of prominence and, 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 uh, prominence and notability. And think about that down through history. Anytime one man has tried to unite the world under himself, it's always come to some kind of a demise, some kind of evil. And so in response to man's self-exaltation and, and in response to, to this unified rebellion and this declaration of let us go up, as they declared, we read in verse 7, 
God who said, come, let us go down. And like God had done back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through through 24 with Adam and Eve here, here's the, here's the grace, here's the mercy. And like God had done back in the Garden of Eden, we see that, that his judgment at Babel not only dealt with the immediate sin, okay, but it also helped to prevent a future problem. Considering the unity of mankind was giving Uh, The unity uh, of mankind, considering that it was giving and would continue to give these people a false sense of power, that we don't need God, that would lead into yet a, a greater rebellion against God. Yet by confusing their language and scattering them all over the earth, we see how God was graciously sparing their lives, right? God said, I won't flood the earth, I won't destroy man with a flood, Again, but he never said that he would never not judge or destroy the evil deeds or evil men. He never said that. But yet, at this first global opportunity when mankind was again rebelling against God, God showed grace. God dispersed them. He brought forth his will. And in doing so, he gave mankind the opportunity to repent, to return to him. You see, the bottom line is God could have easily destroyed the builders, their city, and their tower, but he chose to let them live. He chose to give them a second chance. In light of this, guys, it's important to point out that the unity of mankind, like I said, is not necessarily a bad thing. Look at this in regards to our relationship in Jesus Christ and, and what we are in and through him. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it opened the door for the very thing that God had closed here at Babel. In other words, for mankind to once again become one people. One people who are unified in and for the name of Jesus Christ. And guys, the power that we have, the power that we can possess when we're united as one body, it should encourage us here right now as the body of Christ. Remember, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28 says this. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you were baptized into Jesus Christ, you have put on Christ. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, unified in him. So God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's removed the problem that made mankind being one people, that problem that made mankind being one people a bad thing. He's removed the problem, and now it's become a good thing, meaning leaving us to ourselves, to our sin nature. Because by the grace of God, through our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that we become what? A new creation. In Christ Jesus, a new creation by taking our evil hearts, the Bible says, that evil heart that is like stone, and he's given us a heart of flesh. Furthermore, it tells us that God, in doing so, he's put his spirit in us, given us his nature. And God has taken our minds, I love this, that are continually full of thoughts of evil, and it says he's given us the mind of Christ. And through Jesus, we become one body, one family, with one heart and one mind. 
And we are people as, as one and in one in Christ. It tells us that we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. But the challenge we face is to remain in Him. Is that who we are as an individual? Is that who we are as a church? Those who are in Christ Jesus? Do we remain in Him? Do we dwell in Him? Remember, Jesus said, you must abide in Me. Abide in Me. To remain in Him and be unified in Him and through Him. Jesus said that He's the head, right? And that we have our unity in Him and through Him. And, and, and this is a challenging thing to do. It is because Satan knows how powerful we really are when we abide as one people in Jesus Christ with one heart and one mind. So what does he do? He works day and night. He works day and night to divide us, to cause division so that we might be powerless. And this is why we find throughout the New Testament constant encouragement in the New Testament letters that were written to the early church, message after message, letter after letter that basically said, be united. Be united. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he said this. This is how he started off. He says, I plead to you. I beg you. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Unity. All right, before we move on to the rest of these verses, in this chapter, I want to point out that this account that we read about that took, took place here at Babel, it's not just a part of ancient history that we can glean some really cool lessons from. Because Babel and Babylon presents truly a spiritual challenge to every one of us today who believe in Jesus Christ. This is what I mean. Historically, Babylon... We know, or Babel became a great city. It became a great empire. In fact, in 586 B.C., the Babylonian armies attacked and captured the kingdom of Judah. Burned the temple in the city of Jerusalem and took thousands of Jews, of Hebrew people, captive to Babylon. And the Bible tells us for 70 years. And even though God had used the Babylonians to discipline his own people at that time who were disobedient, Babylon is symbolized in the Scriptures as a picture of this. It's symbolized in the Scriptures for us as a picture of worldly pride, moral corruption, and an arrogant defiance against God. Furthermore, Babylon represents a whole world system that opposes God, that hates Jesus Christ, and appeals to the base appetites of our human nature, the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, the pride of life. And even though we as God's people, you know, we can't escape being in this world considering that we've clearly been called to minister to this world, the truth is, is we must avoid being of this world, of this world system that's represented in Scripture time and time again by this Babylonian uh, symbol that we're reading of. And we do this, guys, the way that we are in the world and not of the world, so to speak, 
as the Bible tells us, is the way that we do this is by remembering that we are not here to build the towers of men. And, and when I say that, the towers of men, you put yourself in that equation. We're not here to build our own kingdom. We're not here to build the towers of men. We're here to help build the kingdom of God. And we're here to build up the church of Jesus Christ. And guys, each one of us must make a decision daily asking ourselves, what are we going to build? What tower, what kingdom are we going to build? Okay, Justin, why don't you guys come up? I can't take the little bit of time that we have left and continue on. So we'll end there. And um, as Justin and the worship team is coming up, let's pray, okay? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, for the encouragement and the example that we find here. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to us. I'm grateful, God, that we are of the, our belief is in the one true revealed religion that is in your Son, Jesus Christ. God, may we profess ourselves to simply be followers of you those who call you Lord and allow you to be our master, those who submit to your will and not our own. And Father, we know that's a constant struggle, that the flesh battles against the spirit that's within us. And, and Lord, we know we're a new creation in you. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to walk in the light as you are in light, Lord, to walk in the spirit so that we might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, so that we, Father, might glorify you in this time that we have here waiting for your return, so that your kingdom would be built in us and through us. Lord, help us to take these lessons and to learn from them so that we don't, Lord, stumble and fall. Help us, Lord, to see daily that you're involved in our lives in an intimate and personal way, and that no matter what comes, you're sovereign your, your authority covers it all, that you're still on the throne. You're enthroned. And may we live in that place where we allow you to, to be enthroned over our lives. Father, we love you and we praise you. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys,